Amen. Why don't y'all applaud for that? That's good. I think Bruce might be backstage, but I felt like George held him under a little extra long. Did y'all catch that? It felt like a little longer than normal. Hey, let's pray, and then we're going to dive into Isaiah together. All right, Lord, thank you for bringing us here today by your grace. Your mercy is new this morning. You are here to meet with us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would not allow us to get in the way or resist you in any way in what you want to teach us. We turn now to your word. We submit ourselves to it, trusting that all that it teaches us is true and right and good. And we want it to, to rule in authority over us. We want your word over us. So would you make my uh, mouth, my mind now faithful to impart what you have for us. And specifically as we look at this text in Isaiah and how it teaches us that we need to trust in you. Help us to see very clearly where we're not doing that. And then help us to relinquish those things to you with open hands. Teach us. Teach us how to trust you. And when we trust you, life is where it should be. And when we don't, it's not. And so we want to be people who trust you. Help us, Lord. We are weak. Help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. And we are going to look at Isaiah 7, verse 1 through chapter 9, verse 7. We're not just going to read it all the way through, but we're going to kind of hit the highlights of it. If you haven't been with us, if you're, if you're new or if you've been gone a couple weeks, we have been working through the book of Isaiah. And we are going to do a little bit of heavy lifting today. So everybody with me. Can we do a little heavy lifting today? Yes. All right. Fantastic. Good. So we're going to have to get back into some of our history. If you weren't with us in week one, I tried to unpack for you the history behind the book of Isaiah. We're going to touch on some of that today. I'm going to read the first nine verses of chapter seven and you are going to get confused. I promise you. Okay. But then we will make it all simple and all plain. So can you, will stay with me. Yes. Fantastic. All right. Isaiah seven, chapter seven, verse one. Let's dive right in because we got a lot of meat in here today. All right. Here's what it says. It says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Are you lost already? The names are a bit confusing. All right, verse 2. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sheer Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint, because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken to pieces, so that it will no longer be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. And here's the most important phrase now. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So 
I need to catch you up a little bit in this story of Isaiah and Ahaz. Uh, gang, let's throw the map up. I've got a map for you guys. And I just want to walk you through these first nine verses and make sure that we're all up to speed so that we can get the, the main idea, which is this. Look, it's, it's super simple. Even if you don't follow the history I'm about to give you, the main point of these chapters that we're about to look at is this. Trust God. God's people are called to trust God. And that's what God is saying to Ahaz through Isaiah. And it's what he's saying to us today. So if you check out this map here, the green section represents Assyria. Now the purple is Assyria uh, during the timeline you see there on the map. The time we're reading in Isaiah chapter 7, Assyria is somewhere between the size of that purple blob and that green blob. It's not quite as big as it's going to be, but it is still pretty darn big. And Assyria is the big boy on the block. They are the ones that have everybody scared. They are a nation that is, that is very warlike. They are violent. Anybody remember the story of Jonah in the Old Testament? Anybody read the book of Jonah in the Old Testament? Okay, yeah, some of you guys have read it. If you remember, Jonah, God speaks to Jonah. He says, I want you to go to a city and we'll have a little Bible trivia here. What city does he send him to? Nineveh. Do you notice the name of Nineveh up there somewhere? Yeah, you can see, if you've got good eyes, you can see it, right? It's up there in the purple. It's a city, it's the capital city of the nation of Assyria. Now, the thing that you need to know when you read Jonah and you're thinking, man, what a wimp when God says go and he like goes the opposite direction, Right? And so God has to have him swallowed by a fish and send him back the right direction. Right? If, you, if you're wondering, like, you know, I feel pretty confident I would have gone. The thing that you may be missing is that Assyria is the most violent nation to ever live on the face of the planet Earth up to this point. They had a habit of impaling people when they went to war against them. They would skin them alive. They would cut off their heads, stick them on poles, and put them at the border of their land as if to say, don't mess with us. They ruled by sheer terror. Now let's rethink again when God says to you, go to the Ninevites and tell them that they need to repent because they're bad. How are you feeling about that assignment? Not real great, right? You're thinking, I, I think bad things are going to happen to me. Right? So this is the nation of Assyria. They're growing in power and it's making everybody in the ancient Near East nervous. They are scared, right? And so you have these nations that get mentioned in these verses that we just looked at, the nations of Israel and Judah. Now, Israel and Judah were one nation, Israel, and then they divided into two kingdoms. And that story is too long to tell. So just trust me that they're divided into a northern kingdom, Israel, and a southern kingdom, Judah. Judah is that brown dot down there at the bottom. You actually can see it. It says Judah down there. Israel, for whatever reason, is not listed on this map. But you can see the, the Samaria, the city of Samaria. That's a region. That is where Israel is. And then north of Israel is another nation called Syria. You guys see Syria up there? Okay, so Syria is up there. Now what we heard in, voice, in verse 1, look with me again, because let's just make sure we're understanding. It says, in the days of Ahaz, and he is the son of Jotham, who is the son of Uzziah. He's just giving us a lineage there. He's the king of Judah. Ahaz is the king of the brown area down there, all right? Ahaz is king of Judah, and in his days there is a king on the throne in Syria, and his name is Rezin. So Syria, that nation in between Assyria and Israel and, and Judah, the king there is, his name is Rezin. And then there's a king in Israel, and his name is Pekah. Now the interesting thing to note about Pekah is throughout this, you're not going to hear his name mentioned a lot. He's just going to, they're just going to say the son of Remaliah. That's how God's going to refer to him because Pekah wasn't even supposed to be king. He killed the previous king of Israel and seized the throne against God's will. And so Pekah is, God counts him as nothing. He says he's a nobody. He's not even going to say his name again after this in the text. He's just going to call him the son of Remaliah. Think about how insulting that would be is if I came to you and I never used your name. 
I just said, oh, that's the daughter of so-and-so or the son of so-and-so. That's all I ever said about you. I never addressed you by name. That's what God is saying about Pekah. He's a nobody, but he is ruling over Israel. Now here's what's happening, okay? So Pekah's on the throne of Israel. Rezin is on the throne of Syria. The throne of Assyria, we haven't, we're not even dealing with their leaders yet. We just know that they're this big cloud in the distance that everybody's scared of. And Judah, Ahaz, is on the throne of Judah. That's what we've learned in verse 1. Now, at the end of verse 1, it says this. It says that, that Syria and Israel came up to, to Jerusalem to wage war against it. Now, you can find this story in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, where it says that essentially Israel and Syria have been making war against all these other cities all over Judah and actually conquering a lot of the territory of Judah. And now they've arrived at the gates of Jerusalem here in Isaiah chapter 7. And everybody is, it says in verse 2, all the people of Judah and Ahaz are shaking like trees in the forest are blown by the wind. That's a great image, isn't it? The idea is that they're scared to death. They're scared out of their minds. They're not sure what to do. Now, the reason that Israel and Syria are attacking Judah, the reason that they're at the gates of Jerusalem, is because Israel and Syria saw Assyria on the rise and it made them nervous. And they said, we better make a coalition of nations together to defend ourselves against Assyria. And so the two of them got together, Israel and Syria. They're not naturally friends, by the way, these two nations, but they decided we'll get together for the sake of trying to defend ourselves against Assyria because it looks hopeless. And so they do, they make a pact and they say to Judah, why don't you join us in that pact? And Judah now Decide, has a decision to make. They have to decide whether or not Ahaz, the king of Judah, has to decide, am I going to make a pact with Israel and Syria or am I going to trust God? Hint, that's the right answer, right? Or part three, am I going to make a deal with Assyria to, to, to try and basically kind of make a coalition with them? Ahaz, will find out, makes a coalition or a pact with Assyria and that makes Israel and Syria ticked off. All right, so Israel and Syria are attacking Judah because essentially they chose to make an alliance with Assyria rather than with them. Everybody got that? Fantastic. Simple enough, right? You, you became friends with them. We don't like that. We're going to attack you. Okay. Now, here's what happens. Follow verse 3. Let's just kind of make our way down here. Uh, in verse 2, sorry, it says, When the house of David was told... Oh, no, I'm sorry. We already touched that. That's where they're shaking like the trees of the forest. Okay. Verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah... Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear, Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Ahaz is probably out at this spot because he's checking on the water supply for the city of Jerusalem. Because if you're going to come under siege, you're going to need what? Water. And so he's checking to see how secure the water supply is. That's why he's there, making preparations for battle. Verse 4, and say to him, so here's the message, from God through Isaiah to Ahaz. Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. Okay, so here's what he's just said. Here, here's how we can summarize it. Trust God. He is saying to Ahaz, Isaiah now comes, he's the prophet of God, and he says, trust God. I took a little survey of some of our staff this week, and I asked, you know, when you get under stress and, and like you can feel the vice, the pressure kind of coming in, how, like, how... Do you react in that moment? What's your reaction? And all of us to a T said, we become really bad decision makers and we run around like in a frenzy. Anybody else do that? When things get real tight, like, so let's say Messiah students, it's finals week and you know that like 
if I just sit down and study one subject at a time, I'll get there. But you find yourself just jumping from subject to subject and all of a sudden you're running all over campus. You're like, what am I doing? I'm wasting all this kind of time. And that panics you even more, right? And then you're like, oh my goodness, I'm never going to get there because it just feels like too much. And what do you do when it's too much? You tend to get into this kind of panic mode. And what does God say to Ahaz? He says, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. In other words, get real still is what God is saying to him. You can trust me. And he says, he calls Pekka and he calls resin two stumps of firebrands. Isn't that an interesting metaphor that he uses? In other words, what he's saying there is they may look like they're these raging fires, but really they're just smoldering wicks. They're like the, can- the wick in the candle after you've snuffed out the flame. They have no heat, no power to burn. They are not dangerous. You may feel like they are, but I'm telling you, they are smoldering wicks. Everybody got that? So that's what he's saying then. And then in verse 5, he says this. He says, because Syria with Ephraim, he's calling Israel. He's going to call them Ephraim and he's going to call them Samaria at different points. So that's a little confusing. But anytime you see Ephraim or Samaria, he's talking about Israel. Okay. So he says, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, see, he won't even call him by his name has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let's conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. So what he's saying there in verse 6 and verse 5 is that what Israel and Syria want to do is they want to throw Ahaz off the throne of Judah and they want to put up Tabeel, whoever that is. We don't know who he is. But they want to put this guy Tabeel on the throne so that they can have all the resources of Judah at their disposal to help defend against Assyria. All right, so that's where they are. And then God says this in verse seven, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass for the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is resin. And then he says within 65 years, Ephraim, which is Israel, will be broken to pieces so that it will no longer be a people. Now, if you know your history of Israel, Assyria is going to attack Israel and they are going to cease to become a nation. They're going to carry off Israel. Israel will not have any more kings on the throne. And that's going to happen in way less than 65 years from this point. It's probably going to happen in less than 30 years from this point. If, if we, there's some question on some of the dates. But it's around 30 years from this point. Israel will cease to exist as a nation. And that's what essentially God is saying is going to happen here. So in essence, there's all that history. And all God is really saying in all of that is this. You can trust me. Don't put your trust in anything else. Trust me. Now think about the choice. If you're Ahaz, you have a choice in this moment. You can choose to trust God and what he says about Syria and about Israel, that he won't allow them to conquer you, that they are smoldering wicks. They are stumps. They are nothing, right? Don't fear them. You can trust that, what God says, or you can choose to figure out a way to try and save yourself, humanly speaking. And the way to do that would be to make an alliance with who? with Assyria. And which one does Ahaz choose? He chooses Assyria. The great irony is God's going to say to him later, you made a covenant with Assyria to protect you from Israel and Syria. You didn't even have to do that. They would have conquered those nations for you without you ever making a deal with them. You didn't have to pay them the gold you paid them. You didn't have to make any promises to be faithful to them. You could have done none of that and it still would have happened. And at the end of the day, what God is saying is, Stop trusting in human avenues for deliverance and trust in me. Now, we just read all that history and it's 
thousands of years ago, but would you say that that message is still pertinent for us today? Stop trusting in money. Stop trusting in popularity. Stop trusting in power. Stop trusting in your own intellect. Stop trusting in your own superstitions that if I just do things just so that over time everything will line up. Do you guys have those superstitions? Where you feel like if I don't tie my shoes just this way or if I don't do just this. I know some of you athletes have this, okay? Like don't step on the line when you're jumping over onto the court or make sure that you do this shoe first or whatever it may be. Wear the lucky undergarment, right? You all, we all have those superstitions. And what God is saying is like none of those things are going to save you. Trust me. Trust me. Okay, so that's the story of, that's the abbreviated Reader's Digest version of the story of Isaiah and Ahaz and the conversation that they're having. Now here's all I want to do in the rest of our time. The rest of this, these chapters are really lessons in how to trust God. And he gives us such practical lessons in how to trust him. And I just want, I want to give you three. Can I give you three? All right, three lessons in how to trust God. So my guess is, my hope is, that the Spirit of God right now is probably speaking to you and saying, like, okay, this is where I'm struggling to trust God. This is where, I, if it's in this relationship or in this aspect of my work or in my family, whatever it may be, there's some area where God might be saying to you, like, trust me, trust me. And these lessons, I think, are helpful in helping us learn how to do that. All right? So let's do this. By the way, this is so pivotal People of God, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you claim the name of, of Jesus, this is so pivotal for us. Because quite honestly, for those of you who are not followers of Jesus and you're considering, you know, who he is and you're wondering and, you know, whatever brought you here today, um, you kind of have a leg up on us on this. Because honestly, when, when it gets tough, if, if I didn't claim to have a relationship with God, then it would make perfect sense for me. It would be perfectly logical for me to just figure out human ways to try and get myself out of trouble to try and figure out how to rely on the Assyrias of my world, right? How to make the right pact or the right move or, the, or just get the right strategy in place and I'll be okay. It makes perfect sense. But for those of us who claim to believe in a God who's completely powerful and a God who's completely loving and who controls all of human history, can you see where it might not speak well to a world that needs to know him when we fail to trust him? Like it, It's... It's weird, right? It should be weird for us to come in and worship God and say, this is the God who had a plan of salvation from before the beginning of history. Since before the earth was founded, he had a plan to redeem a people for himself in Jesus Christ. And he is working out that plan. And one day Jesus is going to come back. And this God is all powerful. So he will definitely be able to make it happen. And he is loving and good. So we can trust him while he's working that plan out. We can be faithful and patient. And then to fail to trust him. Those two things don't go together. Like when I then run around trying to figure out human strategies for how to get myself out of hard times, but claim to believe in a sovereign, all-powerful God over here, those two things just don't go together. It just doesn't work. And so it's so imperative that we as the people of God, those of us who claim to know God in Jesus Christ, that we would be people who say, I I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust when it doesn't seem to make sense to trust. And let me just tell you that Ahaz is in a situation where it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to trust God. Israel and Syria have already conquered most of the major cities in Judah. We find in 2 Chronicles 28 that Ahaz 
that God was actually giving Ahaz over to these nations because he was committing atrocious acts of sin against God. He was worshiping false gods. He was setting up altars to false gods. He was going so far as to have Israelites or uh, people in Judah sacrifice their children to foreign gods. That's how bad it had gotten. In 2 Chronicles 28, we find that they were throwing their kids in the fire to worship foreign gods like Baal and Molech. And God is punishing, he's disciplining Ahaz as a result. And now Israel and Syria have conquered most of Judah and they've come to the gates of the capital city. And now God's in his mercy, in his mercy, God says, they will not conquer you. When they had been conquering them, you see that? They had been conquering them as a response to Ahaz's sin. And Ahaz has not changed a thing. Ahaz hasn't repented. Ahaz hasn't started being righteous. He hasn't become a better king. He hasn't done a single thing different. He's doing it the way he always did it. And God in his mercy says, they will not conquer you. They will not conquer you. You can trust me. You can trust me. So now let's look at three three things that we find here. And we're going to kind of jump around a little bit on how we can grow in trusting God. Okay, the first is this. The first we find in verse 9. And to put it simply, it's, it's this way. There is no thriving without trusting God. There is no thriving without trusting God. Look at verse 9 again of chapter 7. He says, The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. And then he says this, If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. In other words, what God is saying is that trusting him is the key to getting everything else in life to line up and and to work. Or to say it negatively, if you don't trust him, you can't expect that the other areas of your life should work as they should. And just think about that. I mean, let's trace that out for a minute, right? What he's essentially saying is, if you're not firm in trusting me, you can't count on being firm in anything else. Because trusting me is the wellspring from which all the other abundance of life flows. And if you want to experience goodness and thriving and flourishing in life, the center of that kind of life is trust in God. And where you choose to replace trust in God with trust in something else, whatever your Assyria is, When you choose to do that, you are actually making it impossible to thrive in these other areas because the headwaters that flow down and bring blessing are not there. You guys follow that? That's essentially what he's saying. So I tried to trace this out in my own life this week. I tried to think this through and see if this resonates with you. I'll share just some of my own observations and you can think about if it plays out in your life the same way. So all of us wear a lot of different hats, right? I mean, you may be a student, you're a son or a daughter, you may be a mom or a dad, a husband or a wife, you may be your, your friend to some people. So we wear all these different hats. And I tried to just examine these different hats that I wear and ask myself the question, okay, when trust of God is at the center of my life, is it true then that thriving is created in all these other areas? And when I fail to trust, is it true that then I'm not firm in all these other areas, right? Verse 9, if you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all in any other thing. So I thought about these different roles that I play. I I play the role of husband to Amanda. And I started thinking about how this plays out. And I recognize a pattern that when I trust in God, when I trust in God, I am supportive of Amanda and her dreams and her ambitions. I have found that to be true. And when I don't trust in God, I find that I can become a little controlling, right? I mean, heaven forbid that Amanda should do anything without my advice, right? So I, here's what I have found to be very true in my life. Like, 
uh, God calls Amanda into doing things. And often, right, I find that in those moments, I can get like a little bit, well, you know, I'm just not sure. Like, I, I feel like my input should be given into the scenario. And Amanda is very gracious, but she reminds me that she needs me to be her husband before I'm her pastor. And I'm like, but that's so different because everybody else just wants me to be their pastor. And she's like, yeah, maybe, maybe not. But the point is this, I mean, and this is, this is honest truth. I have found that in my marriage, when I believe that God can lead Amanda and doesn't need me to be part of the equation, that I hold her with an open hand and I become her best cheerleader and her best supporter because I'm just saying, how do I make that happen? If that's what God is telling you you ought to do, if that's where God is wanting to send you, if that's what he's wanting to, to use you to do, I'm behind you. How do I get behind you even more? Coach me, teach me. What can I do to help, right? And that's, what, that's, that's the husband I want to be, right? But then you have those other moments where maybe you're not trusting God and then you think that I better get my two cents in on this or I better have something to say or maybe I become discouraging and controlling I become a husband that none of us wants to be, right? Husband, say amen. You'll get brownie points, promise, right? None of us wants to be that husband who's saying, oh, you shouldn't do this or you shouldn't do that. You don't want to, look, do you want to stand in the way of what God wants your spouse to do? <laughs> the answer is no, right? When I trust God, it sets up my marriage to thrive. When I don't trust him, it sets us up where we're not communicating well. I'm not being open-handed, now I thought about kind of a similar pattern in, in my parenting. So I'm a parent to three pretty young kids, right? And I thought about this. I, I just tried to examine what it looks like when I'm trusting God. And I recognize that when I'm trusting God, I recognize that I take great delight in the uniqueness of all three of my kids. With all their faults and foibles, and they've got them, just like your kids, right? I end up actually feeling great delight that my kids are as unique as they are. And I'm like, oh, I love that they're this way. Or I love that they're that way. When I trust God, because what I'm really trusting is that God has shaped them and made them just as they are. And that he doesn't need them. And here's what happens when I don't trust God. I think they need to look a lot like me. I think I better shape them. You know, and I become, in, instead of a gentle hand of discipline, I become overly harsh and quick to discipline when really gentleness would have done. A gentle word would have sufficed, but instead it was a harsh word. It was exasperating to the kids. That's what I find is true in my parenting. When I trust God, I thrive as a parent. When I don't trust him, I become harsh, critical, controlling. Then I thought about my role as a leader. I thought about my role as a pastor and a leader. And I thought, you know, when I trust God, I become very patient about seeing his vision for this church come to pass. Because I believe it will. I don't think y'all, y'all probably don't understand. You probably don't know. I have such a clear picture of what God wants this church to be. I have such a deep conviction of the kind of church where God's people are on the move everywhere in the city, caring for the least of these, loving the last and the least and the lost. They are getting their hands dirty in the lives of people, unafraid to be known and vulnerable with each other, sharing what's really going on in life, thwarting sin and inviting community into their life. I have a vision for a church where every single person that walks through the door is amazed by the, by the absolute astounding, miraculous presence of God among us. That there's a sense when you walk through the doors that God's spirit is thick upon this place, where he is on the move, where no one walks out without having encountered the living God. 
where every person is changed and transformed and is humble and gracious and wants to see our city thrive and be transformed for the glory of Jesus, but does so in humility and reverence, not in arrogance, assuming we always know what's best in every situation. I have a vision for a church where marriage is held in high esteem and people fight for their marriages and where parents are paying detailed attention to how they parent their kids and loving one another in it. And where when we make mistakes, we give each other grace upon grace. And where we don't have to look like we have it all together. Where we don't have to um, pretend to be something that we're not. That's just, that's the tip of the iceberg of what I see. I have a picture of a church that is absolutely radically following after Jesus. And you want to know something? Sometimes it gets a little frustrating to see how far we can be from that vision. Because I believe it's God's, not mine. If it were mine, we'd leave it behind. Nobody cares. Nobody needs to care. But if that's God's picture of the church, then we better be about it. And I believe God is bringing that to pass. And here's what I find as a leader. When I trust God, I am patient, trusting that he will bring it to pass. But when I don't, I become really hard to follow. Because I either get up here and sound angry. Like if you ever wondered like why sometimes you get in churches and the pastor sounds angry, there's probably a couple of reasons why that might happen. But one of the main ones is because that pastor just may not be trusting God that he will bring about his vision for his people and that God loves his people more than that pastor ever possibly could. That's what I know. I know God loves you. I love you a lot, but God loves you more than I ever possibly could as your pastor. He loves you with an immensely deep love beyond what I can even begin to imagine. And when I know that, it just makes me patient. And it just makes me say, God, you're bringing it about. You are going to bring it about. It's going to happen. I have faith. It makes me firm as a leader. But when I don't, I become scattered. I start to snatch at every little strategy of how we might get for. Oh, what if we did this? This is creative. We could try that. We could try this. Or we could try that. And people get frustrated because you're a scattered leader and no one can follow a scattered leader. Right? You become harsh and scattered. That's what I find as a leader. As a servant, I thought about the fact that I'm called as a member of this church and as a pastor of this church to submit to the elders of this church. Every God says in his word that every church should establish elders and that those elders should govern the church and that God appoints them, that they're appointed by God. And if that's the case, then my job is to, as the pastor is to submit to the authority of those elders. And if they challenge me or question me, then my job is to submit to that challenging, submit to that questioning. And I find that when I trust God, I can do that readily. I can say, amen and yes. I'm glad, to, I'm glad we have godly men leading and governing our church as the scriptures command. I'm happy to submit to that authority. And I communicate well with them when I do that. And when I don't trust God, my ability to submit and be patient and listen well it goes out the window, goes out the door. Do any of those resonate with you guys? So my guess is, whether it's those roles or other ones, that you might recognize what verse 9 is saying is absolutely true. It's a, just a principle to hang your hat on for all of life. If you're not firm in faith, you won't be firm at all. Trust God and watch thriving take place in the rest of your life. Now, the second lesson is this. When the things we trust aren't God, they end up destroying us. And maybe destroy is too hard a word there. Maybe it's that they end up harming us. But when the things we trust aren't God, they end up harming us. Look at what 
Isaiah says to Ahaz about Assyria, the thing in which Ahaz chooses to trust, okay? Look at chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. He says this, In that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria, and they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day... The Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria. That's the razor. The head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. All right, so he's used two metaphors there. He's called Assyria a bee, like a swarm of bees. that are going to come and settle in the clefts of the rock. So this is the picture. Assyria is going to come and they're going to swarm over the land of Judah because... We trusted in Assyria. We thought that would go well for us. And now the result is that Assyria is going to come like a swarm of bees. And have you ever tried to get a swarm of bees out of a bunch of rocks? Can you imagine it might be difficult? That's the image he's painting. And then he switches metaphors and he says, God is going to shave you basically head to toe. Now remember, in the ancient Near East, for a man to have his beard shaved is an absolute sign of shame. It's kind of like hipster culture taken 2,000 years ago, all right? That was way better than that. Come on, that was good. <laughs> so he said, they're, they're, Assyria is like a razor. They're going to shave you head to toe. It's complete shame, utter embarrassment. That's what's going to come to pass. So he calls Assyria a razor. He calls them bees. And he says, essentially, the thing in which you trusted is now going to come upon you and do these things to you. Now look at what he says in chapter 8, verse 5. through. He's going to reemphasize the same idea with a third metaphor. So the first metaphor is bees. The second metaphor is a razor. Now the third metaphor for Assyria becomes a river. Watch what he says in chapter 8, verse 5. It says, The Lord spoke to me again, because the people have refused the waters of Shiloah, that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. So those are the leaders of Syria and Israel. Notice that what he said there, he said they rejoice over them. That's a weird thing to say about these countries that are attacking you. He says, Ahaz, by fearing them rather than fearing me, you're offering them a kind of worship. You're actually rejoicing in them. You're worshiping them by being afraid of them. Now, that one slapped me in the face this week, by the way, when I thought about, think about the things that you're afraid of, the things you fear. What if you realize that your fear of them was a form of worship, that you were bowing in homage to those things through your fear, that you were giving them greater credence and worship than you give to God when you feared them? That's what he's saying to him right here. You're rejoicing in them by fearing them. And then he says this, verse 7, Therefore, Behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So in other words, again, the metaphor here is that of Assyria being a river. So he was, Assyria was a bee, then it was a razor, now it's a river. And the image is of a river that is not staying within its banks. It's overflown its banks, and now you can't control where it goes. You thought you had harnessed the power of this river, Assyria, Ahaz, to protect you, but in fact, you hadn't. It overflowed its banks and now is, is all over your land. In the same way that the bees are swarming, the same way that you've been shaved by the razor, you are now being drowned by the river that you cannot control and in which you trusted. So here's the principle that he's saying. Whenever we trust in something that isn't God, 
and we think that thing is going to deliver us, it does the exact opposite. Instead of delivering us, it does what? It destroys us. Now, I was thinking about, you know, there's a bunch of places where you could see this principle played out. But I got to thinking about all my Messiah students. I was thinking about you guys this week. I think about you a lot, actually, but I was thinking about you this week in particular about this. I've been told, and I didn't go to Messiah, but I've been told that there's a, a ring by spring culture. Is that right? Yeah? Ring by spring? Right? It means by the time you're a senior, you, you better have that special someone that you're going to spend the rest of your life with, right? Good Lord, that's a lot of pressure. And I got to thinking, like, if I went to school in that environment, I went to a big state school and no one wanted to get married until they were 30. No one cared, right? They were just like, no, ridiculous, you know, sort of deal. Um, so I found myself thinking, if I had gone to school, now, look, there's nothing wrong with getting married at the end of college. If God has brought the person that you're supposed to marry, marry him. That's great, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But I found myself thinking that if I were in that culture, I imagine if I got to the end of my senior year and I didn't have a person that I thought I was going to marry, that it might make my sense of being alone feel way more acute than it should. That I might feel that that sense of like I'm alone might feel where, where you know, you might feel it a little bit, but because of that culture and that environment, perhaps you feel, I don't know for sure, but I'm just kind of, I'm speculating. Perhaps you might feel it more acutely than God intends you to feel it. And what do you do when the army of loneliness is at the gates? Right? What do you do? Can you trust God? Can you trust God to be enough? Like if, if the ring is not there by spring, can you trust God to be enough? Can you believe God's promises in 1 Corinthians 7 that he has an absolutely strategic and important purpose for your singleness? That you are meant to accomplish things within the kingdom because of your singleness that a married person will not be able to. And you don't have the ring by spring because he doesn't want you to have the ring by spring. He wants you to serve him in singleness. I mean, is that, can that be enough? Because if it's not, like if we can't trust God in that, then what do we do? We settle. That person seems good enough. Right? They don't love God with all their heart, but, you know, I mean, who really does? That person's probably good enough. And here's the great irony. And talk to anyone who's been married for a while. Here's the great irony of that is when we, when we choose to trust not in God that he's enough, but choose when the army of loneliness is at the gates and we choose to settle, our Assyria becomes that guy or that girl that just, look, I'll just, that'll be good enough. When that happens, the great irony is the thing that you thought was going to save you actually ends up harming you. You actually experience loneliness at a whole new depth that you never knew because there's nothing lonelier than being in a marriage where you don't feel deeply connected with your spouse. There's nothing lonelier than that. Let me tell you, it's way lonelier than singleness. A thousand times more. And when you choose to settle, you, you end up putting yourself in a situation where the very thing you thought would deliver you does what? Doesn't deliver you creates difficulty in your life. Now, here's, here's, the, here's the great thing. Because that analogy works on some levels and it doesn't work on others, okay? And here's where it doesn't work. Because unlike the army of Assyria, right, and unlike this situation, God can take that marriage, which perhaps you might look back and say, if I had really been paying attention to God, maybe my choice would have been a different one. But the answer is not get out of that marriage. The answer is trust God in that marriage and watch him cause it to flourish, it's not too late to trust God and to watch him transform what perhaps was something you chose out of convenience or out of 
fear of loneliness and watch him turn it into a marriage that thrives. God can do that. You know that? God can and will do that if you will begin to trust him. Third lesson, last one of the day on trusting God is this. Jesus is the ultimate reason we can trust God. Now, you're like, yeah, no, duh. That's, I expected you to say that at some point, right? Jesus was going to come into play. But I really want you to see this because hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene, God was talking about Jesus and what he was going to send him to do. And he's talking about it right here in Isaiah 7, 8, and 9. There's three places where Jesus comes up. Let me show them to you. Look with me at chapter 7, verse 10. We're going to read down through verse 16. It says, Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Okay, Ahaz is faking like he trusts God because he's already made an alliance with Assyria, and that's only going to make God matter. Okay, he's not really trusting God. He's trying to pretend like he trusts him. And then in verse 13, And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. All right, so here's what, here's what God has just said. In chapter 7, verse 14 right there, we have a promise, a prophecy about the Messiah to come, about Jesus. And essentially, what, what God is using that message to say to Ahaz is this. You think you need deliverance from Syria and from Israel, but I'm going to deliver you from an even bigger enemy. And that bigger enemy is sin and death. I'm going to send one who is not just going to deliver you from these armies, but he's going to deliver you from the ultimate enemies of sin and death. Now, this this prophecy here gives us an opportunity to talk about this idea of progressive fulfillment. This is something you need to kind of understand when you read through the Old Testament. Because right here in chapter 7 verse 14, he says the virgin will conceive and will bear a son and his name will be called Emmanuel. And in Matthew chapter 1 verse 23, Matthew writes that that, is a, that prophecy is fulfilled by the birth of Jesus. That Jesus was born of a virgin, that he came to deliver the people of God, that he came to make a way for all people to be reconciled to God. So Matthew says, Isaiah 7.14, that's about Jesus. And it was about Jesus 740 years before Jesus was born. That's amazing, right? That's what Matthew says. But if you noticed that in verse 15 and 16, verse 16 in particular, it says that essentially this child is going to be born and that before the child is old enough to eat a certain type of food and to determine right and wrong for himself, that Syria and Israel, the two nations, Ahaz fears will be done away with. They'll be wiped away. Well, Jesus wasn't born until 700 years later, so he doesn't fulfill verse 16, right? Do you see that? If those nations are going to be wiped out and they were wiped out in the 700s, then what, in what way can Jesus be the fulfillment of that prophecy? And what we see is that that prophecy is fulfilled in the short term by Essentially, what God is saying is, I'm going to make quick work of Israel and Syria. By the time that a woman who is not married and therefore is a virgin can get married and have a kid, before all that could take place, I will deliver you from Israel and from Syria. It's going to come to pass fast. Don't worry, essentially. 
But the ultimate fulfillment is of verse 14 is not what takes place in the immediate short term. That's one fulfillment, but the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy happens in Matthew 1.23 when Jesus is born and he delivers us from an even greater enemy. All right, you with me? Does that make sense? So that's the idea. It's fulfilled in the short term in one way, but in the long term, ultimately in Jesus. Now look at chapter 8, verses 8 through 10. This idea of Emmanuel comes up again. In the, in the analogy of the river, where Judah's going to get overflowed by the river that is Assyria, then it says the river will be reaching even to the neck in the middle of verse 8, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. And then he says, be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. And here's the word Emmanuel again. For God is with us. So that word Emmanuel gets used twice there in reference to Jesus. Now what's interesting is when he's talking about Assyria overflowing the land of Judah, he says they'll come up, it'll come up to the neck. But then it will, st- and then it says the land belongs to who? Emmanuel says, the river will flow up to the neck in your land, O Emmanuel. And so what he's referencing is this. He says, even when times get hard and it looks like God's plan of deliverance isn't going to come to pass, he will bring it to pass because God, he is sending God to be with us, Emmanuel. That's why he calls the land Emmanuel's land. He says, look, it looks like things are bad. Have you been there where it looks like things are bad and God's not going to deliver you? He says, but you can trust because Emmanuel, because God is with you. You can trust that the water will rise to the neck, but it won't go beyond that. You may be struggling to get that breath, and it may seem like you're going under, but because God is with you, I will deliver you. No matter how bad it looks, God's plan is not undone. You follow that? So the first thing, I'm going to deliver you from an even greater enemy. That's the promise in chapter 7. The promise in chapter 8 is no matter how difficult times look, my plan is still in effect, God says. And then the last thing, I'm not going to read chapter 9 to you for the sake of time. But it's the popular passage where essentially he says, there's going to be a child born to you and the government will be upon his shoulders. Right? He will be God with you and you will call him wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, Prince of peace, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. And the whole message of chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, is this. Because God is sending his son to be among us, when God is coming to dwell among us in Jesus, because that's the case, he will bring peace. When Jesus reigns, peace will reign. That's what he's saying. So the three promises we have because of Jesus here that help us to know we can trust God is number one, that he's delivering us from the greatest enemy that there is, chapter seven. Number two, in chapter eight, no matter how bad it looks, his plan is not going out of effect. His plan is in effect no matter how bad it looks. And number three, one day Jesus will make all things peace. He will usher in a reign of peace. Why? Because he's wonderful counselor. He has perfect wisdom. Because he's mighty God, he has perfect power because he's everlasting father, because his love is unending. Therefore, he can be the prince of peace. And when the government rests upon his shoulders, when the authority for your life and my life rests upon his shoulders, what does he bring? He brings peace. My friends, we are called to trust God with everything in us, to radically trust him. So here's what I wanna do. We got 10 minutes left. I actually managed my time well today. 
believe it or not, right? That's sad when I have to be applauded for that. That's just sad. It is. <clears throat> so we wrap up at noon. I want to give a, we're going to sing a, a closing song. But before we do that, I want to do something else for five minutes. So five minutes may sound long to you. It may feel short to you, okay? But we got five minutes to sing and five minutes to just be quiet. Here's what I'd like to do. I really, I've been praying about this this week. <clears throat> and probably the natural thing in this moment would be to say, okay. In fact, worship team, you guys can come on up. Come on up. The natural thing to say would be, okay, where am I not trusting God? And that's a good question to ask. I want you to ask that question. I want you to ponder that. I want you to think about it. But actually, I want us to think about something a little different right now. Because I want us to get used to the idea that God wants to use you to speak into the lives of other people. Do you know that? That God wants to use you to speak into the lives of other people. I really believe that. So here's the thing I want to invite you to do now in this. I want you to just kind of, before the Lord, I want to ask the Holy Spirit to come and speak to us. And I want us to just be quiet and listen. And I want to ask you to ask God two things. And please, you know, humor me, okay? I want you to ask God two things. God, is there anyone that you want to put on my mind that is having a hard time trusting you? Anyone I know that you want to put in my mind that's having a hard time trusting you? That's a simple question, right? And I just want you to wait and see who God brings to mind. And then I want you to ask, do you have a word of encouragement for them that you want me to speak. And then I want you to just listen and see if God gives you a message for them. Now, two rules of thumb, okay? One, don't make something up, okay? No, that, no one needs you to make something up. If you hear nothing, it's fine. You might want to get out pen and paper and write or get your phone out and just jot down what you hear because I forget pretty quickly. You may too, okay? So I just want you to wait on the Lord. I want you to listen. I want you to see if he gives you anything. And then if he does, I want you to share it with him. Do not go to this person and say, thus saith the Lord, okay? <laughs> go to them in humility and say, I was praying for you and I had a sense maybe that God wanted me to share this with you. And you just, if that resonates, then great. You just take that and do with it what you will before the Lord. But that was my sense and I wanted to be obedient and share it. Can we do that? Okay, so we're just gonna wait on the Lord for a few minutes, okay? So why don't you bow your head, close your eyes. And I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to come and speak to us. And you just wait and be quiet. Holy Spirit, come. And we pray that you'd speak to us. We want to be your vessels used by you. And we're just going to wait on you here now for a few minutes. And then we're going to sing to you. But we're waiting and we're listening. Would you be well pleased to impart to us your truth so that we might encourage others to trust you. In Jesus' name.